Hi, it's Cheryl. Well, we've just seen the end of the incredible year that was 2020, and here we go into a new year that is still filled with uncertainty and lots of change. It's a long road. And as 2021 starts, I want to share a new podcast with you. In fact, it's an old podcast recorded about nine months ago now, last April, in the midst of the first wave of COVID-19 and the first national lockdown. Still, this recording seems so very relevant. It's a conversation about finding the seeds of new beginnings right there in the difficult end of things. The podcast was originally ready to post in the first week of May 2020. And then George Floyd was brutally murdered. And it just seemed best at that moment to shelve this episode about life and death. But now I think it's time to share this particular conversation. It's thought-provoking. It's a call to action. And it's an offering of encouragement. Here it is. Hi everyone, I'm Cheryl Rose and you're listening to Maybe. This is a podcast about the messy reality of working for and living through very big changes in our world. A world that right now is in the midst of a pandemic. Pandemic. That's a word that I've never really had to think much about. And now it's on my lips almost every day. And it might mean more than you think. I was interested in the word pandemic because the word pan shows up a lot. So the word pandemic is a Greek word, pan-endemic, and demic refers to demos, and demos means people. And pan is many things. It could be all or whole, like panorama, for example, is to see the whole, but it also is the god pan. And he was a wild one. He was half goat and half human. He played the flute. I think he loved to drink. He was out in the woods. Um, got me thinking that the, wor- the pandemic is a certain kind of wildness touching all the people. <laughs> so touching all the demos. But also that the god Pan being a part human, part animal, but also part god. Isn't it interesting that a pandemic might allow us new access to the connection between our humanity, our wild nature, and, you know, our spiritual essence. And that it's not just human. It's about the non-human and the bigger than human world. And I think that's where part of the illness of our (laughs) contemporary society, at least in dominant cultures, is that we have only thought of ourselves as humans making life happen. And pandemic offers a new relationship with multiple dimensions of life and death and death that's right that's right this episode is about the ending of things it's about death and dying always a sensitive subject and even more so right now people are losing their jobs organizations big and small are closing whole systems are teetering many people are letting go of what had seemed like comfortable solid ways of understanding And sadly, too many people have died recently. If you or someone you know has lost someone, I'm so very sorry for your pain. There's a lot of pain right now. Do you ever ask yourself, what's the point? Well, that's what I really wanted to talk about with Vanessa Reed, who we just heard from. 
She's a systems thinker, an educator, a change facilitator, and a beautiful, soulful writer. One of the subjects that fascinates her most is all that might be present and valuable, all that might be alive when someone or something is dying. I connected with her in lockdown in Toronto. Your home is in Montreal, but you are in Toronto. So I came here around March 7th or 8th for a big gathering of women and entrepreneurs with the CEO Summit, and there were about 700 people. And the pandemic kind of spoke harder (laughs) after we finished around March 11th. And then I thought, oh, I'll do my quarantine here. And then there was a lockdown or shutdown not long after. So I thought, well, I'll just do the quarantine here. So I've been here ever since and I'm, I'm staying at a friend's place and they're actually not here. So I'm here all by myself. Hmm. As I thought about some conversations I'd like to share with people, you're one of the first people that came to mind, Vanessa. Ever since I've met you and heard you use the phrase, is it the wildlife of dying, the wildlife in dying? It's both. It's both. And and I would just love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Well, the wildlife of dying and the wildlife in dying came to me as a way of offering to myself maybe a framing for what I'd been experiencing in hosting different kinds of dyings. And one of those dyings or those passages or those deaths was my mother, my, a physical person, a, a person who was deep to me. My first home was my mother. And so the hosting of her death was a very deep experience with my whole family. And then there were other kinds of deaths that I found myself hosting or hospicing that were more about things that we'd created collectively, that we didn't really have language around the fact that we bring things to a close in organizations or in communities. And I would say in, in like the West, for example, or in our dominant culture, growth and bigger is better and just keep going is sort of a dominant theme for our economies and for who you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be big or visible. And what I was experiencing was in those transitions from what we knew to something else, that there was often a letting go and loss. And then there was all this kind of mysterious stuff that would start to show up that didn't have room before. And so I called that kind of wild because I found it mythic. I found it synchronistic. I found it surprising and mysterious and unknown in that space of moving from what we knew and what felt concrete to something much more amorphous. And are there ways that you began to recognize the wild? Like what are some of the things that you would notice that brought your attention to the wildness and also the life that was in that wildness as something was being let go? Mm-hmm. Well, what was coming to mind, which might not be completely what you were asking, but you know, my mother had brain tumors. She had cancerous brain tumors, which in, in one way of thinking of that is, is that is absolutely horrible. But those brain tumors um, did change her mind. <laughs> and so she started to quote poetry and she started to remember the poets of her girlhood. And she would quote them to me as if that filing system hadn't been available before, but this shadowy wild thing that was a cancerous tumor pushed against her normal brain, the one that we knew and we loved, and started to 
get her to pull out some file systems that had been kind of under the earth or just not available for a long time. So she would just suddenly quote Yates or Blake, and then she would say, you know, I love the way they thought about things. So I could have this sort of shadowy, scary feeling about the brain tumors and the sense that they were murderous and awful. And at the same time in her process, a palliative process, she accepted that she was dying. These tumors were pushing out other parts of herself that had been hidden for a very long time. She Mm -hmm. was able to speak to them in this incredible, joyous way. And so the wildness of that is a shadowy, dark thing that actually illuminates something exquisite that was hidden. And for me, that was like so moving. And I could be mad at the tumors, but they were revealing parts of my mom that she hadn't Mm. revealed in so long. I mean, I can't help but think about that beautiful story that you're telling about your time with your mom and the times we're living in right now. So I search for other words to talk about this time of living in the midst of this pandemic and all that it means. And I have used the word wild. You know, it feels wild. We are experiencing so much letting go right now, personally, professionally, organizations and sectors of all kinds wondering if they have actually now experienced death, if it's over, or might they come back somehow? And if they did, it might be very different. But what might be alive in this dying that we're seeing around us of how we thought everything was, but now is no longer. So one of the things I find really fascinating about this time, and I don't know if it's good or bad, it just is in the moment, is that many people who have homes are at home. We can't go out into our external lives in the way we normally did. Go for coffee, go for a run, go to work, travel. Many of us, and I'm saying many of us because many people actually do not have homes right now, and that's a, a very different experience. But the idea of being home, like I think of the Greek word economy, oikos means home, and economy is actually a word about taking care of the home, of the pantry. And right now, there's a kind of homecoming. (laughs) It's a very mysterious kind of homecoming. Like, this is a really interesting thing because many of the myths around homemaking are about sorting things out. I would say they're very feminine myths, like I think of Vasilisa or Psyche. They have to go into a process of sorting the grains from the sand what is living and can be planted and what the earth, the earth that plants it. And, and the sorting of that, or in the Vasilisa story, she has to sort laundry. She has to sort poppy seeds from dirt. That sorting mechanism is a deep psychic process mm. of, again, coming closer to oneself, but also the seeds are things that can be planted. The laundry is something that creates a, a fresh new Something's been cleaned and cleansed and there's a fresh time and folding is a very, you know, in this case, it's it's spiritual housekeeping. So I find it very interesting that in this time of pandemic, which is a very chaotic, very unknown, like you said, lots of losses, that there's a kind of re-entry into the pantry, into the home place, into the smallest economy, which is a single person or a family. And there's a lot of sorting out to do. <laughs> and it's very hard, you know, homeschooling kids, uh, relationship issues, there's issues of abuse at home. There's also people finding each other again after a long time. There's something very challenging and also very beautiful for many people. But isn't that interesting? We've been sent home. Mm. And that homecoming is a very, very deep 
process. So I know I'm just considering that. And I just think some of the older stories remind us that you have to go deep into something in order to come home. Yeah. And this idea of sorting, you know, feels very profound when I think about it. In some ways, we might be practicing that because we're stuck at home and we decide I'm going to clear out this bookcase. I'm going to get at that closet. I'm going to clean out my refrigerator, you know, but it's almost like a practice and a preparation for deeper kinds of sorting, like sorting out what do I want to keep in my life? What do I don't want to keep in my life? You know, the privilege of making those choices. And then, you know, in the very biggest picture, thinking about our communities and our societies. And I wonder if that also is a way of preparing all of us for a much grander, I'll use that word, sorting that has to happen as we get to a place of deciding how we move forward. Mm -hmm. I also wonder, I mean, right now we see these demonstrations happening, right? People have had it. They don't want to do it anymore. And, you know, I'm going to not say that I have none of that. I have my own small tangents where I think I want to travel over and see my mom. I want to, I want to go to a restaurant. You know, I understand those human emotions attached to being constrained, but why do we resist it? And I wonder if it's an avoidance, not only of death, but of our natural reaction to that, which is grief. And I wonder, what have you learned about grief in your exploration of death and letting go? Uh, Well, I experience grief as almost a protection. And I think everybody's grief is totally their own process. And there are so many different kinds of grief. And so I'm speaking about a certain kind of grief that I had that um, protected me from going about things in the way that I normally would. It gave me space. It pushed me to not be so outward. It was like a companion. And the reason I think of it at that time, at least, as a protection was because I might have just gone right back into things the way I'd been doing them. And in a sense, that wouldn't have served me. That being slower, being sometimes confused, being in a kind of fog slowed me down. And for me, that was part of the wildlife, was that in that fog, I just couldn't do the things that my primary identity wanted to do. And I had to go about them differently, or maybe not even do those things at all. And I've been thinking about grief also, in terms of grief related to the past, that sort of our associations with the past or maybe collective identities in the past. So grief that might be happening in the moment right now might be also a re-triggering of past griefs that haven't been processed. And so boom, they're right here in the moment. And then there's griefs about the future that hasn't happened yet and our fears about the future and that that's happening in the present, anticipatory grief. After my mom died, I had this huge fear that my dad was going to die right away. And then I thought, well, he's here and he's still here. But it was like anticipating the possibility of something. So I think there's a lot of that right now in the pandemic is that death is very close. The actual death of humans with many people happening, whether it's in our families or huge groups of people, for example, the black community in the U.S., or the Rohingya who are on boats and can't even find refugee camps to stay in. There's a huge amount of loss of life. And so it kind of creates a timelessness of being with the past, the present, and the future. And I think that's one of the gifts of the wildlife. The wildlife takes us out of the linear timeline and brings us into a much more enlarged, much more mysterious sense of time that we actually are part of the past, present, and future in the moment. And what does that feel like? 
that's actually a different relationship with life. So I, I just think that my grief and grief in general is a teacher, is a companion, is an atmospheric condition of grief. <laughs> and that it's not to sort of get over it or just integrate it, but to be in relationship with the softer or sometimes more vicious or more mysterious elements that it brings. Mm. If I was to ask you, Vanessa, what is something that you're saying to yourself, to the people that are closest to you, that you're in dialogue with about these times around paying attention now to the wildlife in all that is dying? Mm. Are there some things that are like on your mind about that? Mm-hmm. You know, I do think it is about paying attention. And I think of the quote from the Mary Oliver poem, I think it's called Sometimes, where she just says, these are instructions for living a life. Pay attention, be astonished, and tell about it. And the idea of like paying attention in such a way that you're astonished. First of all, I think of it being exquisitely in relationship to the nuances of life. And to tell about it could be in any way, you know, but it's to actually communicate the astonishment. And so that's one piece that feels really important to me is this kind of paying attention that has astonishment in it. And, um, And the other person who comes to mind, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who is a real hero of mine. He's, he was a rabbi who came from Warsaw during the Second World War, and he marched with Martin Luther King. He talked about radical amazement, and he said, radical amazement, humans have the ability to be amazed, and that that amazement is almost like a responsibility. And radical amazement is both the incredible glory of the spring that's arriving right now, at least in our part of the world, with the leaves budding and, you know, the incredible life that's right in front of us. But it's also acts of horror to be amazed, to be constantly amazed, and then again to tell about it and to never take for granted what's happening or to get used to it, to never just get used to the spring happening and to never just get used to human atrocities happening You have to have a response. You have to be amazed. That is one of the most human capabilities is to constantly be amazed. So for me, that feels really important right now to notice the tiny things, but also the really hard things, to be amazed again and again that there's such levels of abuse happening, to be amazed. And I I don't mean amazed, stopped in your tracks. I mean amazed in order to do something about it the levels of injustice, the illumination of the criminal ways our systems have been working over decades and centuries, and to be amazed radically at our root, and then to be able to respond. Mm. So those things feel really important. There's like the beauty and awe, and then there's the recognition of transgressions and injustice. And both of those are to be astonished and to pay attention, to be amazed and to tell about it. Yeah, those seeds that we've talked about, pay attention to what amazes you, to what bewilders you, to what like really sparks hope in you, and to think about what needs to be done about those things. What are we going to let go of and what are we going to make new in ways that we perhaps have never imagined before? That's what's alive in Mm -hmm. all of that's dying right now. 
And I do feel that in the patterning or the depatterning in the dying, that there are the patterns of something new or very ancient that do emerge. And it's not to say, okay, things are dying and then we'll continue doing as we did before. But in the dying and to really let ourselves be sort of taken by it, to be informed by it, to be amazed by what emerges, that in that are the seeds of some new pathway. It's not a pathway back to something. So many things we've marginalized in our cultures, in our systems, those marginalized pieces have a chance to move in and inform us in different ways. That's my hope, at least. And that's why I think the wildlife and the dying is to be touched by that, to be changed by it individually and collectively. You know, it's, it's not an era of change right now. It's a change of era. It's a fundamental transition. And so the dying has a, a lot of life for us. You've got such a unique meaning-making mind and spirit and heart and soul. And thank you, Cheryl, for this conversation. It's so fun to be asked questions and to think about things together. My thinking and my feelings evolve each time we talk, and it helps me so much travel with all that's happening and not get stuck in one spot. Mm. And so I really love our conversations, and I love your questions and your spirit of inquiry, but also just your companionship and, and being on a journey. We're on a journey, one that Vanessa calls a change of era. On your own journey, what are you sorting through? What feels alive for you right now? And are you seeing any patterns? Because maybe the seeds of new beginnings are right there in the endings, in the wildlife, in the dying. Thank you to Vanessa Reed for speaking with me from her temporary home on Treaty 13 territory traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. It's now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, and it's a place where Vanessa is mindfully connected to a number of thoughtful reconciliation initiatives. This podcast is inspired by the book Getting to Maybe, written by Francis Wesley, Brenda Zimmerman, and Michael Quinn Patton, and I'm grateful to each of them. My thanks to Esther Gad for good company, great conversation, and her very talented post-production support. I couldn't do this without her. Esther and I live and work on the traditional unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. And thank you for listening. Thank you for paying attention in these times, especially when one of the biggest questions is, will we boldly let go of all in the present that now needs to end, that needs to die? And the honest answer, at the moment is maybe.